thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's God, Law, and Liberty podcast, and I'm looking forward today to talking about a lawsuit that was recently filed uh, by a Christian organization that pertains to and will help us better understand this question of foundations and how we are to go about rightly building on the foundation of what it is we ultimately and finally believe and hold to be true. Now, in case that didn't make much sense or you've just begun to listen to our podcast series, this whole series on foundations really began with me talking about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3. So as a refresher for those that are new, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 3 that he says in verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And, and I've reflected on the fact that I often thought of that only soteriologically, that yes, Jesus Christ is the foundation of salvation, and there isn't any other foundation for salvation in Hinduism or Islam or Judaism or anything else you can think of. It's only through Jesus Christ. But I came to realize, and what we've been talking about, is that, that that's really true in a cosmological sense. Nothing in the whole of the universe or the cosmos can be rightly understood if it's not understood in relation to the foundation for all things that is laid in Jesus Christ as the only begotten from eternity Son of the Father. Now again, if that didn't make much sense, let me encourage you to go back to listen to some of the other episodes. But the point today here, and, and to the issues that I want to talk about and highlight, is the fact that after making that statement about foundations, the apostle goes on to say, now, every man builds on a foundation. And even if we are Christians, he says, who see Jesus as the foundation soteriologically, if we don't build, this is what I think he's saying, on that foundation also cosmologically in relation to all things that we do. Not just matters of piety, but how I understand my marriage, how I understand work, how I understand art, how I understand education, how I understand government. If I don't understand all things in relationship to and in light of that foundation that's laid in the objective theology of who Jesus Christ is, then he says, on the final day, you may find that your work will be burned up. It will have proved not to have contributed really to what? The, the building, the growth of the kingdom of God as it moves from this temporal realm into the eternal realm of an earth removed from its bondage and moved along with us into its state of glorification. He said, so you may be saved. But you'll find that all of your labors were otherwise, in terms of that ultimate goal of, of no real enduring value. Now, 
I want to put what I'm going to talk about today in the context of a statement that Jeff Schaefer made about the oral arguments that were made in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Center case back before the United States Supreme Court in December, which for those that may not remember, is the first case before the United States Supreme Court since 1992 in which the court could actually reverse Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I want you to listen to what he said about the arguments and what he's really hopeful for that would happen if the Supreme Court reverses Roe, but what he suspects will not happen. So listen to what he says. I, I, I will rejoice if this happens, but what I really hope for, I don't think is likely to happen. And I want you to listen to what it is that he really hopes for, because it ties into what I will next say. I am cautiously hopeful that the court will rule in a way that overturns Roe. I would rejoice in that outcome. I am less hopeful that a majority of justices will join together to clarify that Roe and its sequelae represent a moral and anthropological disaster that has besmirched the court perhaps irremediably and contributed to a national sensibility and a legal logic that represents a horrible distortion of the purpose of law, the meaning of personhood, and a person's defining relations as fathers, mothers, children, and family members. And moreover, to confess that Roe has facilitated an unsightly sequence of subsequent judicial rulings that likewise renounce and negate basic standards of human identity and family order. So in other words, what, what Jeff was saying is, it will be good if abortions are stopped. But actually, the underlying law, the underlying jurisprudential constitutional points about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be persons, well, that may not be addressed at all. And so while abortion may stop, the underlying evil worldview that produced Roe remains in place and will continue to have effects unless we as Christians and Christian organizations make an argument that says, we can't ignore what it means to be human and a person. Now, with that as background, I want you to listen to this next clip from Jeff in which he talks about how today we frame our legal and political arguments, how we frame them, because then I'm going to come back and show you that what Jeff is talking about there in terms of the context of abortion applies to a lawsuit that was just recently filed by another Christian organization, but will offer no course correction at all. So listen to this next clip about how we argue and present our cases. Now, of course, I don't for a moment believe that the justices and the attorneys who are participating in the Dobbs appeal are unaware of the human stakes. As such, I assume that their out loud points are likely proxy arguments used to accomplish the case resolution that they covertly understand justice to demand. 
but that only highlights the unseemliness of this guild characteristic of refusing explicit attention to the fateful profundity that is in fact implicated in the case resolution, which makes any judicial resolution achieved upon such omission seem unsuited to the task. Okay, so now I'm gonna apply what you've heard in this context of the abortion arguments and how the abortion arguments were framed and what the abortion arguments talked about versus what they didn't talk about. What, what no one in the courtroom actually wanted to talk about that they used, as he said, as proxy arguments for what was really at issue. In, in other words, we don't really want to talk about that elephant in the room, so can we talk about, oh, we need a lot of space in the room and We'll need a tall ceiling and we'll need strong floors, but nobody wants to say, because there's an elephant that's in the room, okay? So here's what happened this week. A leading Christian organization filed a complaint under the Civil Rights Act, Title IX, against the University of Pennsylvania for, quote, refusing to protect the rights of college female athletes under federal law. Now, there's nothing wrong with asserting your rights under federal law and arguing that the federal law is being violated. There's nothing wrong with arguing that the federal law reflects rights. Of course, if we truly understand things, we would know that real rights don't come from a law enacted by any legislative body and they don't come from any declaration by the judicial branch in a decision it renders. True rights precede any statute, precede any judgment of the court. They exist independent of and antecedent to any positive declaration of what those rights might be by men. So we need to be careful when we're talking about these things that we're, we're not somehow implying to anyone that our rights are dependent upon the federal law. Again, not, not saying it's wrong to, to talk about the federal law, to use the federal law when it, when it provides a remedy, but we need to be mindful that that's not where our rights are really found. Now let's go on and look at what they're complaining about that constitutes the violation of rights under federal law. And what they say is this, the person that uh, they're complaining about is anatomically and biologically a male with physical capacities that are different from anatomically and biologically female athletes. Well, that's a true statement. That's great to make that statement. But notice now what they say, which extends an unfair advantage and strips female student athletes of opportunities afforded to them by law. Let me read that again. The person that they're, they're complaining about that's causing a violation of the civil rights of women is that the person is anatomically and biologically a male with physical capacities that are different from anatomically and biologically female athletes, which extends an unfair advantage and strips female student athletes of opportunities afforded to them by law. 
Now, I mean, that's certainly a, a true statement. It's kind of like saying abortion is murder. Well, that's a true statement, too. If, if you ascribe certain value to the biological and anatomical realities of what is in the woman's womb. But that's the issue, isn't it? To what extent are bodies revelatory, as I quoted Jeff from saying last week, are bodies revelatory of any private and public meaning that is real, that is true? Somebody sent me an email this week and said, you, you don't need to be called fact, you need to be called faith because, you know, you need to just look at the facts. And I responded to the person and said, well, it is what we hold in faith that we can't prove that tells us how to interpret the facts and which facts are important. Now, see, that, that's, that's what's being sort of missed here is that we could say all day long this, this person is anatomically and biologically a male and then say, so, what is the worldview, what's the premise, what's the predicate for deciding that those facts have anything more than a private meaning? That they actually have some kind of public objective meaning? Because, you see, what, what we're now saying in this culture is that those things don't matter. It's what's in my head and my subjective, personal understanding of who I am. That's what we were talking about last week. Our body's revelatory of anything that's actually true about what it means to be human or to be male or female. And, and, and does that have any public meaning? And so what is this lawsuit now doing? It's saying, well, there are these differences, but why are they important? Well, they say why they're important. It creates an unfair competitive advantage, and it deprives people of opportunities afforded by law like for scholarships and other things like that. Now, the press release about this lawsuit goes on. This is what they say. This is the gravamen of the whole complaint. The future of women's sports is at risk. Well, as we've understood women and women's sports, it is at risk, but not to the people who understand women and women's sports differently. As a subjective understanding of who we are, where bodies and anatomy are are not determinative and not rev revelatory. But in any event, as a Christian, what, what is my goal here? Is my goal to save women's sports or is it to actually save women as a distinct category of persons and human beings having a public meaning within the law that distinguishes them from males and so therefore a male can never do anything by which he would compete against a woman. You see, this is what Jeff was saying. We're unwilling as Christian organizations to actually say there's something true about men and women, and therefore we can properly classify and distinguish sporting events in dormitories and showers and locker rooms based upon this objective reality of male and female. No, we just want to save women's sports, which is the proxy argument for the real problem that's underlying it. But when you won't talk about the real problem, you'll never see a course correction. That's what Jeff was talking about. Why will there never be a course correction? Because we've never talked about what's off course. 
we're talking about the second and third order consequences of having denied what it means to be human, made male and female. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm dogging this organization and you're supposed to go out and try to find who they are. I didn't mention their name because I understand what they're doing. They're, they're trying to use the federal law to, to make a point and, 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 and the point that they're trying to make is not a bad one. But what I, I hope we will see is that we're relying here ultimately upon positively enacted laws affirming certain things about uh, in, in intercollegiate sports, uh, differences between male and female. But ultimately, the argument here needs to be rooted in what does male and female mean and not be rooted in just simply the outcomes of sporting events. I hope that's clear. So, so while it's not wrong to pursue a proper and right construction of Title IX, we at some point have to be willing to say the reason Title IX should be construed this way, the reason this law is good is, is not just because of the unfairness of competition, but because there's a reality to male and female. And there's going to be a point at which these, these arguments about statutes, which can be amended, which can be revised, will be changed, and then we'll have nothing left to stand on. So I wanted to, to try to help you understand today that this is a way to build on a foundation, but it's building on the foundation of a man-made law that can be amended and changed, particularly if the words used in the statute are given a meaning contrary to what they historically would have meant, and then we're left with nothing. And that's what we need to make ultimately a course correction, because it will not surprise me if the court does not say here, if the arguments are not made correctly, well, this male swimmer who's now transitioned is every bit as much a, a woman as other women. And then what do we do? You see? So anyway, next week, I hope you'll join me, and we're going to look at, at why we can have hope that if we will address these fundamental issues, if we will bring them up, if we will argue them where we can argue them, that our work will not be in vain. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.